So we're not just tackling hunger, we're, at, we're really tackling food waste, you know. More than a third of all the food produced globally goes to waste. It's the third largest contributor to climate change. It's like a catastrophe, uh, every which way you look at it. I, th- I think the potential is massive. Um, right, we're going to get uh, into some quick-fire questions, if that's okay with you. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so summer or winter? Definitely summer. Okay, office or work from home? Work from home, for sure. Okay, tube or taxi? Oh, bike, but then tube, and then taxi, Uber. Okay, and uh, USA or England? England. Why? I've been here for 13 years, and it just really feels like home. Um, I'm from Iowa originally, um, which is where my lovely family is, but it's not a place I personally would want to move back to. And so otherwise, I feel a bit homeless in the U.S., whereas London really feels like a home. I have a great group of friends, and my I have my child here. So definitely the U.K. Okay. Uh, Takeaway or home cooking? Home cooking. And red wine or white wine? Red wine. And finally, a beach holiday or a snow holiday? I know it's cheating, but I do like to do both each year. But if I had to choose, I would probably choose a beach holiday. Okay, good. Right. Well, I'm, glad, I'm glad you actually chose because a lot of guests <laughs> just sit on the fence. And it's like, there are harder questions in life than picking one of those two. <laughs> That's true. Okay, so uh, thank you, firstly, for letting me delve deeper into your story. So firstly, you made the jump from Banker to uh, the app Olio. What made you um, turn your back on, I guess, a successful career in in banking? Or can you just take us quickly through your original um, journey in finance, I guess, more broadly? Uh, Yes. So my philosophy when I graduated from university was to build a really bulletproof CV and to sort of de-risk my professional career so that if anything ever happened, I knew that I could get a great job and support myself. I was really seeking financial security and career stability. Um, so I went and worked at Morgan Stanley for four years. I then went, um, I was um, I was in a variety of banking roles as an analyst. It was, God, 20 years ago now, so it's a distant memory. And then, as one does, I went to business school where I actually met my, um, my Olio co-founder 15 years ago. Um, we met at Stanford. Um, and I spent two years trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and just failed at coming up with anything. Um, really, in hindsight, I was just very, very risk averse. Um, I think I knew what I wanted to do. I'd written about it in my business school applications. Um, I'd written about wanting to have a startup in food, actually, but I was just very risk averse. Um, So I went and worked at McKinsey for a few years, which was an excellent training ground, but certainly not a place I wanted to spend the rest of my life um, or career. Yeah, so after McKinsey, I spent six years at American Express, um, which was a much more balanced lifestyle, which is something I've been craving after banking and consulting. Um, But it's still a huge global organization, and making change was really difficult, and I found that very frustrating. And at times I felt like, you know, what's sort of the point? I'm just going through the motions. You know, I'm on a high-potential career path, but I don't actually see anything around me changing. And I had the very, very good fortune of being able to opt for redundancy when I was on maternity leave. I had been given a promotion in my absence, and the promotion required more travel, um, significantly more travel. And at that time, I had a newborn, and, you know, I'm an expat. I don't have family here. I could not get my head around how I was going to make that work. Um, And it was such a relief to be able to have grounds upon which to turn down that offer and to take a very, very generous redundancy package. So I did the maths, and I figured out if I cut my spinning in half, I could live for about four years off of that package. And I that was the, probably one of the best days of my life. Just instant felt this, like, all the sort of financial security that I'd been seeking, 
the freedom to think about what I really wanted to do um, all came at once, not to mention the joy of being a new mother. So it was a really good time period. Um, and before I actually started Olio, I started a different business um, called My Crush in North London. That was born out of my personal experience on maternity leave when I recognized a gap in the market for flexible childcare. Um, I was desperate just for a few hours um, to myself, and I ended up spending a lot of time at the Virgin Gym where there was a crash, and you could check your child in for two hours, but you couldn't leave the premise. And I noticed that a lot of moms were checking their children in and sort of reading a magazine or catching up on email. Um, so I had the idea to open um, a high street crash um, where mothers and fathers could drop their children off on a pay-as-you-go basis. So, okay, let, but let's just take it back to um, your during your redundancy mm. period of yeah. this four-year magical area. How many years into this had you decided to build my crash? About a month. Oh, okay. <laughs> right, okay. so uh, yeah, all that freedom. Yes, it didn't last very long. I'm yeah. definitely... Um, From freedom to the most responsibility you could possibly give yourself. I'm a doer. I'm very, you know, I have a lot of energy. Um, I love getting my hands dirty. I can remember my son being about four days old and him strapped in a sling around my, you know, around my chest mowing the lawn. Like, I just am a sort of get up and do project kind of person. I loved the feedback that we got from parents and knowing that we were really providing a valuable service to those customers. But scaling was a very difficult thing. And because of the way childcare is priced and the way it's um, regulated, pr- the profit that you can get from it is capped. Um, so it's around that time that I decided I wasn't going to open more crashes. That Tessa, my co-founder from Olio, and I came together and started actively looking for an environmental challenge that we could tackle at scale. At that time, my father, who's very eccentric um, and I love working with, um, decided to run for U.S. senator in Iowa. And I went back to Iowa to spend two months as his campaign manager. It was a wonderful opportunity to actually work alongside my dad. Obviously, we've holidayed and we've um, shared our life stories. But working really hard on something over an eight, ten-week period was just provided a whole different level of um, interaction that I cherish and I'm glad that I got to experience. Needless to say, he did not win at all. Um, but but I'm very proud of him for trying. And at the end of that, that would have been November 2014, that's when Tess and I came together again. And she was on her second maternity leave, and I had to decide what I wanted to do next. And I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, and we'd worked together in the past. And we did a very sort of consulting MBA type of thing to do, um, where we did a big market study looking for an idea. And we knew we wanted to do something that would benefit the environment. We knew we wanted to do work in an area that could be disrupted with technology and that was highly scalable and global, et cetera, as one does. And we spent about three months actively interviewing, you know, CEOs of recycling plants and CEOs of um, plastic uh, manufacturers and trying to understand if there was an opportunity to build sort of a global B2B marketplace for different waste streams. And there, th- we couldn't find anything. In fact, it it was incredibly frustrating. Um, And we got to the point, I remember very clearly, on January 23rd, 2015, when we, and there was a third friend working with us on this, and we we had to sort of look at ourselves and we're like, there is nothing here that we can do. Nothing here that's exciting. And we were in tears. Um, So we called it quits on the project. Um, And that's when I was about to probably open a bottle of red wine. Did the project have a code name? 
I can't remember, to be honest. I code probably name, did. Um, <laughs> code name, don't get to the red well, wine. Well, we were with my friend Maria. She likes champagne, and Tessa's more of a white wine girl. So, um, But Tessa went upstairs to put her child down, and she came back downstairs, and she said, there was this one thing that happened to me that I haven't told you about yet. And she went on to describe how the month earlier, when she'd been moving back from Geneva to the U.K., on moving day, she found herself with food that she wasn't going to be able to eat in time, um, including some organic, um, non-perishable, not fruit specifically. It was sweet potatoes and cabbages, if I remember correctly. And the removal men said she wasn't going to be able to take them with her. And she was not going to let them sit in the corporate flat and go to waste. So she bundled up her two kids in the middle of winter and went out on the street trying to find so- someone to give them to. And she couldn't. Um, and she got very frustrated and over-emotional. And, um, because she looked like a crazy lady carrying some sweet potatoes. Take my and, cabbages yeah. and potatoes. Yeah, exactly. And she knew if she'd knocked on her neighbor's door, she'd probably be able to find someone. But that was an awkward thing for an English woman to do, and she wasn't going to do it. And um, as she described this experience and her sort of frustration that there wasn't a solution, we really did have that joint um, aha moment. Um, I think Tessa, it had been fermenting in her back, in the back of her head for a while. But for me, as soon as she told me, I was like, that's just ridiculous. There's an app for everything. There should be a platform that connects people with food that they don't want with people nearby that want that. And within the hour, we named the company. Within the hour, we'd agreed um, we were both going to put in 20 grand to bootstrap the company and give ourselves one year to get traction and momentum and defer going back to the workforce for a year. And for that 20 grand, did you include your own salaries or were you just like, we'll work on this for free in the meantime? We were the gonna, 20 grand is purely on the business. I still had my redundancy packaged and Tessa was on maternity leave. Yeah, cool. So it, no salaries, just to build the app. We had to move very quickly. We're both the primary breadwinners in our family. We've got young children. We are, don't have time to waste. Um, so what we did is we found in, we ended up finding an agency in Bristol named Simple Web, who are fantastic, um, who took a small equity stake in exchange for 50% off the MVP build of the app, which meant that we were out of pocket 25 of our 40. Mm. But before we did that, we even though we were absolutely convinced we had to bring this to life, we had a lot of people who were skeptical, um, and specifically our partners who just were like, what are you talking about? People are not going to go walking around, meeting their neighbors, picking up moldy carrots. That's what Tessa's partner kept saying. Um, I mean, it's better when they're not moldy. Yeah, I know. As a customer of yours, I, 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 haven't, <laughs> I haven't given anyone moldy anything yet. No, no I know. But um, So what we did is we first did a market research, just a survey monkey. We got as many people locally to fill it out to let us know obviously, you know, how they felt about food waste. And we learned that one in three people feel, quote-unquote, physically pained when they throw away food that is edible or was recently edible. We found that 90, 95% of people would be willing to walk up to 10 minutes to pick up homegrown fruit and veg from a neighbor. And we got lots of interesting insights. Um, And that was reassuring. We then identified 12 people who were very excited about, about Oleo and didn't know each other, but all lived within a 15-minute walk of each other. And we asked them to participate in a real, um, real MVP. And we put them in a WhatsApp group for two weeks. And the rules were very simple. Add any food that you don't want or you're not going to eat. Private message to request it if you do. Um, And I think it was a matter of minutes before when we said, okay, everyone, you're in the group, go live. And we sort of sat there. And it was within minutes someone added a bag of shallots. And right away, two people responded, I'll take them, I'll take them. And it was just 
such a, I think we cried. I'm sure we cried because it just happened and it worked and it was seamless. And over the course of those two weeks, there were 26 collections between those 12 neighbors. And when we debriefed with the different, um, the participants, they all said, this is amazing. And I've been talking to this guy on Twitter for five years and he lives around the corner from me. I didn't even know it. And now we've had tea. And we also learned that whatever we built didn't need to be that much better than a WhatsApp group. So a lot of the things we thought we needed in the beginning, like user profiles and um, ratings and people like, no, 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 like just very simple. Um, And that helped us from a features perspective, really scale back um, on what we launched originally. When we launched on July 9th, we had collected physically 2,200 email addresses. Um, So between the Easter WhatsApp group and the July launch, we were out on the streets every single day. We hand-delivered over 10,000 letters through people's neighbor bo- letter boxes, directing them to a website where they could pre-register. We stood on the street corner handing out food that we picked up from shops that they were about to throw away at the end of the day, saying, look at this food. It was going to be thrown away. If you think it's crazy, sign up, um, pre-register. And when people did pre-register, they basically gave us their email address. We would ask them on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you about this? And if they said 9 or 10, we said, you've got to volunteer. Like, we need your help. We can't do it without you. So we had 30 volunteers on day one. And those were our little, our little market makers. And we dispatched them to help clear, quote-unquote, the marketplace when someone who wasn't a volunteer was, let's say, adding something and it wasn't getting requested. Um, so it was a very, very manual grassroots process in the beginning. And that's still how we um, launch in new areas today. In fact, I was at my gym the other day and I sent you a photo and you were like, no, that would have been a volunteer that put those there. Yep. It was amazing to see that happen. I mean, that must be one of the coolest things about your brand, to have a brand that people are passionate enough to just go and do that for is is basically the dream. It is. It's fantastic. We've had 25,000 people volunteer. Um, and we basically give them a hyperlocal marketing kit um, and a community, and we cheerlead, um, and we enable them to create an Olio network um, in their neighborhood. And how does the Olio network run? Is that on Facebook? Is that through the app? Um, the volunteer network. We have a closed volunteer group on Facebook. Eventually, we will be migrating it in um, to the app or a volunteer portal. We're sort of looking at that now, but it's been it's been good enough on a closed volunteer Facebook group. But we also have a, a volunteer portal where volunteers can access sort of all the information and guides and inspiration that they would need, um, order marketing materials. We have lots of different flyers and posters and letters. So it's a really a self-service approach and a bit of an open source approach as well. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. 
And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. And, you know, fast forward now to 2019. How many how many downloads have you had? How many active users, um, active oleoers, if that is a word, if there's a word with more vowels in it, we, I'd like to know. But, uh, yeah. We do use oleoing and oleoers. Um, we do use that a lot. Um, we, you mean I'm not coming up with something new? <laughs> 2019 will certainly be at a million downloads um, and 800,000 signed up users. Um in over 160 countries. We've seen food sharing take place successfully in 49 countries due to the grassroots volunteer model, which means we have micro-communities all over the place. And because it's user-generated content, people are able to hack it in different geographies, um, and it works well enough. We will be at a million and a half portions of food that have been successfully shared um, between neighbors. Um, So... The, there's certainly a lot of momentum, especially considering that we've spent less than 5% of our budget on marketing. And so it's really been an organic growth model um, through word of mouth, through the through the volunteering activities, through partnerships, through press. I think the one thing that surprises me, um, if I may, about your strategy, knowing that you're uh, very intelligent and think things through, um, that's not based just on this conversation. Uh, for listeners, I'm not that biased. <laughs> but is that you would uh, want to be in 160 countries so soon when um, the brilliance of what got you going, I mean, basically, as you'll know, having done it, mm. building a marketplace is just insanely complicated mm. Um and very few companies have done it brilliantly mm. in any industry. And one of the key rules they usually have is don't grow too fast, too mm. broadly, etc. Because it is a supply and demand market. And when you're in a country where one of those is lopsided, there's no product. Yes. So I'm definitely not to trying to say that we have active functioning marketplaces in 160 countries. We originally had that mindset as well. We were very strict and constrained growth to certain geographic areas. And if you weren't within that geographic circle, um, originally it was just sort of six square miles when we did our pilot in North London, and then we went to Hackney and North London, and then we went to M25, etc. But we we had so many people reaching out from outside of those areas saying, I understand it's going to be a poor experience. I understand that there might not be liquidity in my neighborhood yet, but I'm willing to volunteer to take the initiative to make that happen. And it turns out you only need about 50 people 
all within the little, na- you know, one little neighborhood signed up. And one individual volunteer mm. can build that out themselves. So we are half a decade or a decade away from having active marketplaces in every country like Airbnb does or something like that. And obviously that is the aspiration. But in the short term, we've decided that if there are keen and eager people out there who want to start stopping food waste now, start connecting their community, let's empower them to do that. So I guess the key part of your strategy, if anything, is to find the right kind of volunteers. Do you have like a vetting process? Is that something you've spent more time in that area than most of the other ones? We do spend a lot of time thinking about our volunteers and how to inspire them. And we actually have four different types of volunteers. And there's a bit of a hierarchy um, and increased responsibility and status that come with the different types of volunteers. So we have food waste heroes who are working on the supply side of the marketplace. There's We have about 3,000 of those right now. And that's a thorough vetting process. They have to do a kitchen self-assessment. They have to do online training um, for food, health, and safety. Um, they have to have a phone call with a team member um, before they can start collecting food. Um, so these volunteers, these food waste heroes, are matched with businesses that have unsold food at the end of the day. Food they haven't been able to sell. They haven't been able to discount. They haven't been able to donate to charity because there's just not enough charities and charities can't take all the types of food. There's still food that is fit for human consumption um, that could benefit the local community. And so those volunteers take that food and they bring it straight home, put it in their fridge, add it to the app, and within an hour or two, their neighbors come around to their house to collect it. Um, so that's a because it's food safety and food safety is incredibly important and the businesses that donate to us need to know that we are taking it seriously. Um, it's a very sort of strong vetting process for those volunteers. For the ambassadors, which are sort of our volunteers that are building demand, it's not so much of a vetting process because if you want to hand out flyers on our behalf and put up posters, you know what, we're probably going to let you. That's more about keeping them engaged over the long term. So how do we, after the initial rush of, okay, I put up all the flyers, I put up all the posters, now what do I do? We need to sort of keep them in a, a proactive mindset over the course of a year or longer. So shout out to the listeners that want to uh, become Olio supporters and volunteers. What have they got to do? Go to the volunteering section. Actually, I think it's called Get Involved on our website, and all of the information is there. Um, Super. That'll do. And maybe even tweet you on Twitter? Yeah, you can tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us. We are we cannot do what we have done to date without our volunteers and volunteering is really fun. It feels good to stop food from going to waste. It it feels good to connect people to share food. Mm. And from a lady that spent too much time in Britain, obviously, and lost any sense of her Americanism, (laughs) where is the tweet me right now at this address? Do this, do that. This is what I kind of expect from, you know, the American gusto. Come on, like, let's, 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 let's tell people what to do. At Oleo underscore EX. I won't go into why you don't want to go to Oleo EX. Oh. Please don't go and look there. Um, <laughs> I really want to know. No, now. no, it's 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 not a very nice Twitter handle. Um, Is it not child friendly? No, it's okay. not. It's um, not for, your old for crash listeners. company. No, <laughs> at Oleo underscore EX. Okay. Um, Oleo, the food sharing revolution. I mean, if you type in Oleo in food, you will find us. Why Oleo? Oleo is a synonym for hodgepodge. So it's a miscellaneous assortment of things. Um, but Tess and I really liked the symmetry. Um, and the O's are very symbolic in terms of circular economy, the earth. It, it wasn't an over-considered decision. It took us less than an hour. But as soon as we came on Olea, uh, came across Olea, we were like, done. Okay. We should have probably checked that it means olive oil in Italian, but 
But never mind. Never mind. There's nothing wrong with olive oil. It's also something aspirational. It sounds like appetizing. It's not the Food Waste Recovery Network or something that's perhaps not very modern. That is true. Right. <laughs> I think it's time to take a step back to your sordid past. No, I'm joking. It's not <laughs> sordid. Um, okay. <laughs> so, well, semi. It's, it's, I wouldn't say sordid, just different. So, um, you do have a very unusual uh, childhood. So, for starters, real birth name, Sasha Celestial One. Correct. Take us through what kind of fucking weird hippie shit that is. <laughs> so our British listeners, and even only fifty percent of our listeners are American. Even they're going to find this weird. So, so talk to us about this. Sure. Um, so my mother's name is Sun, um, which she changed her name to when I was younger, um, and my dad is. Richard Stewart and they um, Richard that great constellation (laughs) they met at a health food store that they were both supporting that was one of the first health food stores sort of in my town and um, it wasn't long after that I was born and they were entrepreneurs they founded a company called Frontier Cooperative Herbs um, which for the first decade of my life um, was unsensational, to say the least. That's herbs for British listeners. Yes, herbs, yes, um, and spices and natural products. Um, And they were sort of one of the very, very few, at the heart of one of the very few hippie communities in the the Midwest, um, which is sort of a meat and potatoes type of place, lots of farming, et cetera, very traditional. Um, And I guess that you name the hippie hippie stereotype. I sort of experienced it. So, um, I was born in a cabin. Um, my mom and my aunt were midwives, um, and I've witnessed um, and actually assisted um, loads of births, um, and actually delivered my two younger sisters when I was a in my early teens. You know, we none of us were vaccinated. Raised on a very vegan ish, mostly diet. We all have different surnames. Um, I went to Grateful Dead concerts every single summer until I was old enough um, to stop going, which would have been 13, which also is when they, well, I guess they kept touring beyond that. Um, Did so, you pay for the tickets in cash or corn? <laughs> I didn't pay. I don't. I didn't pay for anything. My parents had friends who had a pizza truck that they would drive around all summer um, on the tour sort of path and sell pizza out of the back of the truck, and we'd just camp and God knows what else. Um, so sort of with the, I grew up with like a pack of one of my you know girlfriends was named Emily Flower Garden and. I don't know. It was a very sort of free-spirited upbringing. Um, It was also um, very resource-constrained. I don't really like using the word poor, but uh, money was scarce. And so I have a lot of vivid memories of following my mom around town, as you mentioned in the intro, skip diving, um, for example, collecting plants that were broken behind plant nurseries and then repotting them and selling them on. We sort of had a year-round garage sale. I can remember at one point there being four or five toilets on my front lawn and just just being so mortified that I had to come home after school to this. But they'd been rescued from houses that were being torn down and obviously they had value and my mom wasn't going to let them go to waste. And that type of scavenger mentality is just really instilled in me. And it's, uh, you know, it's something that you can't really escape when you grow up with it. So I'm the type of person who walks down the street in London and sees, you know, a discarded pair of jeans and takes them home and washes them and either gives them to charity or gives them to, um, wears them myself or gives them to a family member. I can't stand waste of any kind. 
I love this story because it is uh, the most unique and unusual upbringing that we have of any of our guests here. But can you take us through your your teens? Like you know you like. Obviously, growing up, you know, one flower garden and celestial yeah. one um, together on against a, a farm. But then, you know, it comes to time where you're like, um, I want to become a banker. I want to leave this life and I want to go as far away from this kind of. You know, it's I just did, so fascinating psychologically how that can happen. That's such a shift. Well, you know what? It actually happened. Um, it happened when I was 13 and when I decided to go to boarding school, which was a bit of a fluke. It's hard to explain in one podcast. Um, But yeah, I had a bit of everything in my childhood. And the first sort of part of my childhood was different than my teenage years. Um, And a lot of it has to do with the way my parents separated um, and the way when they separated, my dad took control of the company that they'd founded um, for a variety of reasons. And then there was a very big income inequality in my own family. Um, And so my dad could afford and very much wanted his eldest child to escape um, and to have the best um, possible education. And he worked really, really, really hard to make that an opportunity for me. And I was, um, I wouldn't say I was shipped off because I chose to go um, to um, Andover, which is one of the best boarding schools sort of in the world, much to my mother's you know, she was not a, a fan of that idea at all. Um, and uh, luckily, I was only there for three years because I did end up getting expelled, actually, at the end of my junior year. Why? Uh, well, I was caught um, off campus at a party Okay. twice. And you're not allowed <laughs> to do that? No, okay. definitely not allowed to do that. <laughs> Liability and all of that. Um, and and then I, I ended up not graduating from high school, actually. I sort of, that was the beginning of what I might call the really wild sort of years. Back to today, then. So you've had this. You've had this upbringing. You've had this uh, career in banking. Um, did you every single interview you ever went to? I have to ask. I know you're probably bored stiff of answering this, but did you always have to explain the celestial one part? Like Morgan Stanley, were they like always. what? Always, yeah. always, yeah, definitely. I mean, in America, they ask you usually within ten seconds, but it is amazing sometimes here in the UK how long people will wait. Often in an interview here, no, you don't get asked. They can never not hear such a <laughs> celestial one. And uh, I guess it's 100% unique. Yeah. You ever typed your name into Facebook and seen if there's anyone else in the world like you? Not Facebook. I have Googled it once or twice. I haven't I haven't seen with anyone else with the same name. Okay. I mean, it is depressing how common Daniel Murray is. <laughs> so anyway. Um, right. So let's come back to uh, wrapping up towards the end of the interview. Um, I guess uh, some key questions I have for you. Um, what is the actual ambition for Olio? So um, you don't seem like the type to not have a plan. What is the five-year plan? What is the 10-year plan? What do your numbers look like? Where are you going? We just closed our Series A a few months ago. You, know, you said of, how much you raised from who? Yep. So we just raised, and we've raised $8 million in total. Um, and Excel and Octopus have been our lead investors. We also have um, a variety of impact investors, the Norskin Foundation, Quadia, which is based out of Geneva, um, investors who are you know looking for commercial and social returns at the same time, and some fantastic angel investors. We um, have are using that to. We've really grown the team. Um, we're just about twenty people now, and um, are gearing up for scaling. Much of what we've done, especially all of the volunteer management um, and the surplus food business donations, which is, I should say, the first way that we've become revenue generating because it's a service for which the businesses pay us um, to organize the volunteers to take the food away. 
all, a lot of that has been done manually um, all through WhatsApp groups, basically. And it's just at way at breaking point. So we the next six months are all about gearing up for scaling um, and then taking a lot of the money we've raised and investing that into, you know, growing um, through our more scalable machine. We ha- have a huge vision, like absolutely huge. There's no reason that there shouldn't be... Uh, food sharing community and also people can use it we don't talk about it a lot but you can use it to share anything um so household products clothes books whatever um eventually who knows what else people might be sharing on it all legal of course um mm-hmm. i didn't know where that's not where i was going um <laughs> so not where my mind was going, I promise <laughs> i mean we're moving from a resource abundant world to a resource constrained world and this is becoming increasingly apparent um and Giving things that are already in existence um, or that we've already invested resources and energy um, into producing um, an opportunity to extract the maximum value from those things or that food um, is just going to become a necessity. And so every community around the, around the world, millions of them, should be able to have a tool that facilitates the efficient redistribution of value. And we want to get to a billion users. We've said 2025. That might be a bit ambitious, so maybe give it um, a few more years. But I know that our investors believe that we have that opportunity. It's a really, really scalable platform. I mean, I, I actually fully back that and believe it. As you know, the first time I used Olio, uh, I was amazed because I took a picture of the most random shit I had in my in my cupboard. Like it was, I mean, uh, easy vegan egg mix, <laughs> which is gross, um, which is why I was giving it away. I just hated it. I was like, I don't, I'm never going to finish this. It was a picture of like nine random things. Someone came, picked it up within 10 minutes. I yeah. had so many offers. And what was really cool was I didn't have to take individual pictures of everything. I was just like, here's a bunch of stuff. Here's one photo. Everyone and wanted it. You can imagine how, I mean, we the product to date has, was built with three people and just cannot wait to see the full vision of the product come. You know, it should be as easy as like one tap, someone arrives at your door. Yeah. Demand is insatiable. F- globally, no matter where you are, 50% of listings are on and off the app in under two hours. In a place like London, it's like you say, it's 10, 20 minutes. Yeah. There's, you know, one in nine people go to bed hungry every single day. And most of them have a smartphone. And most of them have a roof over their head and can understand how to use an app like Olio. So we're not just tackling hunger. We're, at, we're really tackling food waste. You know, more than a third of all the food produced globally goes to waste. It's the third largest contributor to climate change. It's like a catastrophe uh, every which way you look at it. Um, I, th- I think the potential is massive. Um, so your, I biggest, really do. your biggest uh, competitor is the freezer. You ever thought about that? We often say our biggest competitor is the bin. Okay, fine. But the second second book is evil is the freezer. Yes, yes. I don't. Yes, I don't know how vegan easy eggs would freeze, but no, true. <laughs> well, I mean, they sure as hell didn't taste good either. So, um, anyway, before uh, before we do leave, I have to ask: What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given on your um, meandering journey? Is it don't throw that away? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not. Sure, I'm not going to be able to recreate the actual words, but. A belief that was instilled in me very early is that the only type of failure that counts is not trying at all. And it's better to try, no matter how small um, and fail, than, than to never have the courage to, to get started. And I think that's just really informed my work ethic and my confidence and redefines what success is. Success is getting out there and doing something. And so I would encourage anybody entrepreneur to come up with whatever is the smallest step that they know they can take with confidence and just to do that and know that that is already better than 
not doing anything at all. There's also a quote that I love, um, which is, comparison is the thief of joy. And I spent um, a long part of my life earlier, not when I was less wise, comparing myself to others. And, and that was the most useless and waste, waste, you know, least productive use of time. Um, and it really just is so counterproductive. So um, I try not to spend time comparing myself. I try to just recognize that I'm responsible for my own happiness. No one else is. Um, and get out there and get busy. And have there been any um, really crucial uh, like lessons that you've learned from the dark, more complicated moments? I mean, again, building a marketplace, nightmare. Uh, very difficult. Hyperlocal marketplace for Hyper-local. perishable foods of low transaction value. Yeah, that is a tongue, <laughs> tongue twister of nightmares. Luckily, people eat three times a day, so it's a frequent use case. Okay. Um, yes, have there been any like uh, any really amazing lessons you've learned about yourself that you can share with others from from get, getting out of like really uncomfortable, difficult situations in your in your experience? I think, uh, and I have had some really tough personal times over the last couple of years, which have, for me, have felt so distracting like that part of my emotional and mental processing power has been completely sidetracked um like for one thing i'm comfortable sharing is you know i spent a long time trying to conceive a second child without success and that was you know really emotionally traumatic for me and then that preoccupied a lot of my time and energy and i felt guilty i felt like i was letting down my team i was letting down my co-founder i was letting down my members of the oleo community and the internal monologue that you have, um, you know, you are your own harshest critic. Um, once I got through sort of some of those periods where I was, you know, I felt preoccupied with my personal life and I checked in with my team and my co-founder, everyone's like, what are you talking about? Um, you know, I almost overcompensated. Um, and so I guess what my what I would say is that even when you don't feel like you're doing your best, oftentimes this precisely in those moments that you are doing your best um, and, and you shouldn't give yourself a hard time or beat yourself up for um, everyone's goes through periods of, of, of vulnerability and sadness. And that doesn't mean that you're not a good person or not a good entrepreneur. Um, okay, so look, finally, uh, as I do have to let you go, but I'm running out of time because I keep uh, keep wanting to hear more. What other businesses um, do you think should exist in the world in the sust- in the sustainable global circular economy that other people, our listeners, can go out and start thinking about um, joining a revolution today? What kind of things do you think the world needs? I mean, I really think that we're going to move towards um, a shared ownership model for just about everything. Um, more like library of things, and that's actually a concept. But um, we don't want to own cars. We don't want to own, you know, eventually clothing and um, iPhones and, you know, everything. We should be leasing it or renting it or, um, you know, having it for a period of time and then returning it so that it can be repaired and upgraded. I mean, the scale of e-waste that is happening on the planet right now is insane. So why we have any direct primary purchasing going on at all, I do not know. And so I think we need to move really quickly across all classes of, of things and stuff to a shared, shared ownership models. That's where I think the future is. Couldn't agree more. Sasha, thank you so much Dan, for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Next week on Secret Leaders. He thinks that I said it was a terrible idea. Quite often I find my default is to try and pick holes in things and to challenge people. What I do remember thinking is I would use this. I knew that Brent would use it, so he had some one and a half customers at the very least. And that is pretty much my starting point. That 
was Baroness Martha Lane Fox, the co-founder of LastMinute.com and karaoke chain Lucky Voice. She's also a pioneer of the UK startup culture in general. She reflects on the horrific, life-changing injury that crippled her and how it changed her perspective, attitude and life for the better in next week's episode. So tune in or you'll miss out. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by your host, that's me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and if you've heard this, it'll probably have something to do with Jennifer Osman in Canada. You'll also notice throughout this series, we've got some beautiful illustrations made for every episode, and that's all thanks to Christina Naru of smartupvisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming Secret Leaders live events on secretleaders.com. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe on whatever media player you use. Just follow us at Secret Leaders on Instagram or at Secret Leaders 1 on Twitter. And tell just one friend about how freaking awesome this episode is. If you want to go the extra mile, I'm at Dan Murray Serta on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'd love to see you take some screenshots of the episode you're listening to and share it across your social media. It'll bring a tear to our eye and joy to our hearts. See you next week. Tune in or you'll miss out.